Crossway Church Sermon Audio. I didn't realize that at the time, but I was a Santa Claus deconstructor. I told Artie what my parents told me. There is no Santa Claus, and we're Santa Claus. That's what they told me. But Artie was unmoved, unconvinced by my argument, and unimpressed with my credentials. So I tried to use logic to reason with him. How could any human being fit down a chimney, Artie? Christmas magic, Artie argued. Well, what about carrying presents for all the children in the world? How is that possible? Christmas magic once again. Well, how about this flying reindeer? Surely Christmas magic can't make that happen, but you can guess his answer. Every mystery was solved by Christmas magic. Now, remember that conversation Uh, It's funny as children and the things that you remember, but I remember that, and we had so many conversations, uh, but I remember it because he was immovable. It was impressive. He was convinced, and he was determined to remain convinced. And we're in a series in the book of 2 Peter entitled, Truth in Times of Error. Today we're looking at chapter 2. One characteristic of this passage is that there are no imperatives here. We're not told to do anything, the whole chapter. What comes across is that we need to know something. We need this information. We have to take the truth in. We have to take it in deep into our souls. We have to take it to heart and have it frame out and filter our interpretation of life and of people. We're to continually remember the truth, to recall it, and to remain convinced of it. And that seems to be on Peter's heart throughout this whole letter, and we can apply that to chapter 2 as well. Both before, at the end of chapter 1, and and beginning in chapter 3, we're going to see he calls us to remember. So in keeping with the direction of 2 Peter, I believe my friend Artie is a bit of an example for us today. Now, of course, he was wrong about Santa, But he is a good example of remaining convinced. Would that all of us remain that firm in our faith in Jesus Christ throughout our lives. Would that we remain that convinced about the truth of the gospel and about who Jesus is. We need to remain convinced of the truth. And we're going to get some of that today. So let's capture 2 Peter 2 like this. In the face of falsity... Remain convinced that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. In the face of falsity, remain convinced that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. By the way, what do you think of that word, falsity? Falsity. We don't use it too often. It's not the smoothest word, but I thought it gets at our subject best because we're going to read about false teachers today. And it's not simply that false teachers lie here or there. In fact, most of the work that false teachers do is probably telling the truth, right? With a little bit of lie mixed in. So it's not simply that they tell lies here or there, but it's that they're false on multiple levels in their character, in their motivation, in what they're teaching. We're going to take 2 Peter 2 in three parts. So first of all, we're going to take a look at the certainty of false teachers, the certainty of false teachers. Let's read 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, verses 1 through 3. 
but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In the verses just prior to chapter 2 there at the end of chapter 1, Peter teaches that prophecy is, di- is different from the regular speech of, of men, from regular teaching. Men spoke prophecy, but it's not simply everyday speech. It's inspired speech. God breathes it out into the prophet, and the prophet then speaks it. They're carried along, Peter tells us, by the Holy Spirit. The prophet was the true friend of God's people because he took what God said and he communicated it to them. He reveals God to them. He reveals God's Word to them. He reveals God's nature and what God's done to them. He's a true friend to them. And that is what the Scriptures are to us today. They're our friend. They reveal God to us. But in these verses here in chapter 2, and the ones to follow, Peter focuses not on the friend of God's people, but on the enemy of God's people. And he transitions with a simple statement. That statement is this, there were false prophets among the Israelites. There were. The Old Testament Scriptures have several stories of false prophets. And even when there's not a story to go along with it, we see the Scriptures denouncing the false prophets, like in Jeremiah. There's plenty of material there. Here's one story you might remember. 1 Kings 22 tells the story of an Israelite king named Ahab. Ahab wants to go to war, and before doing so, he checks with the prophets to see if he will be successful in this war. He gathers a gang of prophets, about 400 men, almost as many people as we have in this room today. Not quite, but almost. 400. And he asks them, shall I go to battle? And and they say, go up. Go to battle. You'll be successful. They tell him that God will be with him and that God will cause him to triumph. And you get the sense that it's a bit of a circus. It's a sensationalized spiritual environment because of the large number of prophets and the activities they engage with. And to top it all off, one of the prophets has a set of iron horns. He had a set of iron horns made, probably like some kind of animal antlers. And he tells the king, Thus says the Lord, with these, these iron horns, you're going to push back the Syrians until they are destroyed. So Ahab goes to battle. But these are false prophets. They're enemies of God's people. And they were Ahab's enemies if he could have seen it. And Israel loses the battle. King Ahab gets severely wounded and he ends up dying shortly after the battle. Okay, so that's a false prophet. There's false prophets. They were always popping up in Israel's history. It's a major theme. And here's the lesson that we have to take from this. Just as there were always false prophets popping up in Israel's history, so there will be, so there will be false teachers among us. 
so there will be. That's what Peter's saying as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. The reality is not new, and it's not entirely avoidable, though we try. It just is in this fallen world. And so let me rest this assertion on God's Word. We read it. I want you to see it as clear as day here up on the screen. But false prophets also arose among the people speaking about ancient Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. I think we may need a bit of reality therapy here because this category of false teachers among us may almost seem impossible. But it is not only possible. You see the writing of Peter. It is biblically probable. It is probable. The only real question is does our own personal view allow for this possibility? Do we just shut the possibility out and say there's no way, there are no false teachers here, there never will be, there never was, and there never will be? Or do we recognize this categorically as a biblical probability? Remember, Peter's writing to churches. He's writing to Christians, and this is what he says to them. Now, I think the primary goal of 2 Peter 2 is really to give us hope in this world. And, I, and, and we're going to get to that in a few minutes. We're going to get more to that. But at least part of the point of this text is to help us, A, not be false teachers and to strike down that impulse in our own hearts and to, and to repent of it where that may be the case, but also to help us spot false teachers so that we don't follow them, so that we're protected from them. And throughout this chapter, Peter is going to brutalize, brutalize false teachers. The verbiage in here is hard to teach. It's hard to get our heads around. It's hard to apply because we can hardly imagine anyone around us actually being a false teacher, even though there's a biblical probability that that's the case. So let's try to learn the lesson here to the glory of Christ and to the good of His church. Peter is going to give us a few characteristics of false teachers right here. He's going to come back to it more a little bit later in the text. We'll come back. He kind of uses this circular, uh, it's not a circular argument the way you typically think of it, but I mean like a ring, like he, he starts in one place and then comes back around to it at the end of this portion of text. Uh, but let's touch on what he gives us in these first three verses that we already read. First of all, false teachers rise up among us. And part of what makes identifying a false teacher difficult is that we may already have relationship with them. They might be someone talking to us in the, in the present, someone that we're interacting with about spiritual things. That's a possibility. And I don't think the goal of Peter's teaching here is to make us all schizophrenic and worried all the time, but to make us aware of the reality of this so that we're not taken off guard. But generally, when you're in relationship with someone, you're not inclined to think of them as a false teacher. And so Peter raises this up. False teachers don't just arrive on a Sunday morning for the first time with a false teacher patch on their jacket. They just don't do that. 
Secondly, false teachers secretly bring in, the Scripture says, excuse me, secretly bring in destructive heresies, destructive heresies. Again, false teacher doesn't walk in and say, Jesus is not the Son of God. It's not going to do that. That would be rejected by all of us immediately. It's going to be a different approach. It's something else. They themselves lack clarity on who they are. Something subtle. They're going to bring something subtle, but something undermining to the gospel, something divisive, something subtle but divisive and undermining to our connection with the gospel. And like Ahab's false prophets, the false teacher will tell you what you want to hear. See, falsity is convenient like that, and that's what con men do. Con men find out what you want to hear, what you want them to be. And that's what they become. And that's what they tell you. That's the way that works. And you know, you've probably experienced this already, even here in the history of Crossway Church, if you think about it just a bit. From time to time, fads sweep through, and those can be examples of false teachers and false teaching. We've seen this with certain books over the years, and certain teachers, and, and, and certain things, maybe like healthcare and dieting fads, or certain emphases on particular teachings. You remember Joshua Harris, of course. He was a popular teacher among us. And his story is tragic. But a story is also told in 2 Peter chapter 2. Joshua Harris has deconstructed, meaning he's thrown out Christ. He's thrown away historical Christianity, orthodox Christianity. And one of the last things I heard him say, I don't know, a year or so, a couple years ago, in a podcast that I, by the way, I kicked myself for listening to that podcast because, he, frankly, he's just not worthy of it. He's not worthy of it. Not according to Peter. One of the last things I heard him say in a podcast is that he might come back to Christianity, but he would never, listen to these words, he would never come back to a Christianity that threatens the punishment of hell. He would never come back to a Christianity that threatens the punishment of hell. He puts that into the category of manipulation. That's his value judgment, that to have a hell, to have God's punishment that way is manipulation. You're manipulating people. And to be clear, again, 2 Peter 2 is for Joshua. And I pray that he reads this, and I pray that it frightens him, and I pray that he repents. But but specifically, can you see how his teaching of hell as manipulation, and I I understand he wasn't behind a pulpit saying it, but he was saying it on a large platform that many people listen to. And he has influenced many people. Can you see how his teaching of hell as manipulation denies the master who bought them? That's what the Scripture says the false teacher does. Denies the master who bought them. See, there's no sin worthy of God's wrath. 
this whole idea that you see here in Peter and other places, all over the Scripture, the idea of God pouring out His wrath for sin on sinners. If, if there's no sin worthy of that, if we can't do anything that badly, and who is God, by the way? Who is God to be wrathful anyway? If there's no sin worthy of God's wrath, then we do not need the death of Christ on our behalf. And the Scripture teaches very clearly that those that belong to Christ are bought by His shed blood so that God's wrath has been poured out on Christ and we don't get hell. That's not manipulation, friends. That's truth and that's grace and that's what we need. Now, be careful how you think about this because the natural inclination, if you've known Josh at all, if you sat under his ministry at all, and and take anyone like this. I'm using him as an example because so many of us knew his ministry. The natural inclination is to be very sympathetic toward him and to consider, especially in our day and time and the, the, the the, the, the way the modern self is exalted, the psychological self is so exalted in our time. The way that's the case. You may be inclined to think, oh, this poor man, he was hurt, he was harmed, and, and if the church had been nicer to him, this would have never happened. I think there's, that's a lot of assumptions someone's making in there. But be clear about this. The problem with that evaluation is that it ignores the teaching that is right in front of us from 2 Peter chapter 2. Scripture does not place blame on an imperfect church for the rebellion of other people, even though the church is imperfect, even though we need to be washed by the blood of Christ, even though we are being washed by the blood of Christ, even though He's perfecting us. We're being washed in the water of the Word. We're the bride of Christ, and He's going to present us to Himself spotless and pure. Right now, we're continuing to struggle with sin. Yes, the church is imperfect, but that's not where the blame lies, and it's not how we ought to think about this. Oh, if only the church was nicer then everybody would be saved. That's not the way it works. Second Peter tells a different and true story of the way this works. Scripture places the blame on sinful individuals. We will have false teachers arise, and they will bring in secret heresies. They will seek to undermine the gospel. They will be sensual, meaning they are focused on the physical senses, meaning they're they're motivated, their their level of motivation is very material in the end. They will seek to exploit others in greed with false words, and they are in big trouble with God. These are reasons why, in the face of falsity, we need to remain convinced that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. He knows. Let's take a look at the second part. The certainty of the Lord's rescue from verses 4 through 10. The certainty of the Lord's rescue. Now, we Christians are a people that know we deserve only wrath, and yet we have received the greatest gift through the rescue of Jesus. Not something that we have done, but something that He has done, and He's made Himself alive and real to us, and He's given us faith in Him, and through that faith, We access His grace, and by that grace we are saved. 
We know that we have fallen short of the glory of God by sinning against God, and we know that therefore we ought to receive the punishment for that sin. We know that there is nothing that can stop the justice of God from falling on our heads unless God Himself makes some provision for us. No one else can do it. And God in His love, His mercy, His grace has done that. He's made that provision in His love. He sent His only Son, His Son, our Lord Jesus. He took the punishment of God's wrath in our place, and we were rescued by Jesus. That's why, because we were rescued. That's why we call Jesus the Savior. And He saved us. And so we have been rescued. We have received salvation. But as life progresses, as the Christian life progresses, as we live out the Christian life, because we are Christians, we feel the press of a skeptical, skeptical and antagonistic world that can wear on us. And it seems to press more and more as the days go on. And not only that, but we see the effect of the curse and the fallen nature on the people we love around us. Our hearts can be crushed by the sorrows of life, the problems that we want to fix that we cannot. Further, and perhaps hardest for us, we battle our own temptations. We call it indwelling sin. When we want to do good, we find sin right there with us. We are never too far away from temptation, which desires to drag us off into sin. And you're ever sitting there and you just have a, a sinful inclination. Just come, it feels like it just comes right out of you. And you, oh, Lord, please forgive me. How, why? You know, please deliver me from this body of death. That conviction's a good thing, by the way. The Holy Spirit's at work. But we battle that sin. We fall and we cry out to God for mercy. And in our Savior, He gives us mercy again. He forgives our sin and shows us grace. And, and, and He's merciful to us, carrying us through life by His grace. The Christian life is challenging when you add these things up. But add something else to the mix as well, something that can be devastating. Add this terrible dynamic to the mix, the certainty of the false among us. And this is where Peter does such a service for us, is by calling out the reality of the situation, he makes us aware so that we're not just blindsided. The certainty of the false among us. Isn't the Christian life hard enough without this added difficulty? The Christian life is an obstacle course. It, it feels like it never ends. You, you jump on the rope and you swing over the mud pit and you jump off and you feel like you're all successful. And just as you land, another 10-foot wall stares you in the face for you to climb. And of course, every one of us is so exhausted to the point of quitting at times. This, however, is where our Lord wants us to remain convinced because He knows. He knows how to rescue us, even through false teachers. Let me read for you verses 4 through 10, the first half of, of uh, verse 10. So verse 4 through the first half of verse 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, 
but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. These verses here are one long sentence, one long if-then statement, but Peter draws it out. If you look at it, you'll see there's actually four ifs. There are four ifs that all resolve in one then. The then answers them all together. So let's go through briefly the ifs. The first if is regarding angels, powerful beings, a race made as servants to God. We're told here directly that they sinned. And there are some different ideas as to how they sinned. There's some indication in the Scripture. One popular theory comes from Genesis chapter 6, verse 2. That's where the Scriptures say, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as wives any they chose. And this is not the way God... God set it up so that would be sinful. It's not quite clear if that's what this reference is to. But the one thing that is clear is that even though they were angels, God is just. And they too, when they sin and rebel against God, they face punishment for it. They face justice. So that's the first if regarding angels. The second if regards Noah. Noah is pictured here and elsewhere as a herald of righteousness. He's a preacher of the gospel. Do you think of Noah that way? Or do you just think of him with the hammer pounding on his ark? He certainly was doing that too. But he was a proclaimer of righteousness. He's calling people to repent of their sin and turn to God. And when they do not turn, just like with the angels, God does not spare the ancient world. And isn't that amazing, by the way? Just think of that. We're reading something here from about 2,000 years ago. So it's about 2,000 years old. We're reading Peter's writing. And Peter's writing about something that was ancient to him. The story of Noah. It's kind of cool. God is just. But again, he's also loving. And so what did he do? The ancient world was sinning and God was warning through Noah about his wrath to come. And so God provides a way of salvation for anyone who would listen, though they did not listen. What does he do? He rescues his people from his own wrath in the ark. The third if regards Sodom and Gomorrah. These cities are infamous for their immorality and their violence. Their sin was so great, God turned them into ash heaps, condemning them to extinction, and in doing so, made them an example of what happens to the ungodly. If you ever want to know what the wrath of God looks like, you have a couple right there. You have the flood and you've got Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's quite a statement, is it not? We know what will happen to the ungodly. The fiery, unquenchable, irresistible fury of God that makes an eternal statement 
of God's holiness and justice. God does not take, hear me now, He doesn't take our rebellion lightly. And this is not a status that anyone should remain in. If someone is in a status of rebellion against God, it's time to turn and see the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. He does not take rebellion lightly. The fourth if puts the emphasis again on another one of God's people, Lot this time. Lot is called righteous Lot. He's an inhabitant of Sodom, but because he was upright, his soul was continually tormented by the sensual sin around him, the immorality around him. And that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Like, that's our day and time, is it not? Are we not continually aggravated, tormented, irritated by the immorality around us? That's what... That's how it goes for a righteous person. A righteous person doesn't just, an upright person, one who knows God, doesn't just make peace with the world. Hey, everybody each to themselves. Hey, no, that doesn't bother me at all. And no, immorality bothers us, torments us. Not that we should become self-righteous, but it torments us and compels us to proclaim Christ. Now, to sum up these four if statements, we see that there is great sin in the world, even from angels and from all humanity and from great cities. Nevertheless, God has His people living in these circumstances, and it's terrible for God's people. But we are to spend our days living uprightly and proclaiming righteousness in Jesus Christ, living in Christ and proclaiming Christ. This is how we spend our days. And this brings us to the great then part of this epic sentence. If the angels are not spared when they sin, and yet Noah is preserved, but if Sodom and Gomorrah are turned to ashes, but Lot is rescued, then 2 Peter 2, 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You see, don't lose hope, my brothers and sisters. Do not lose hope in the face of so much intentional sin and rebellion against God, which may include false teachers among us, which could feel like the most devastating blow of all. And don't people lose their faith when they see people they thought were great Christians turning aside, deconstructing, and throwing Christ out the window, and blaspheming the church, and blaspheming Christ and His work. And don't they turn away? Yes, don't let it be you. Because even in the midst of all these difficulties and torments, including the false teachers, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And that's you and I. He will keep us to the end. He will rescue us as He has done so before. He will do so again. 
One of the critical ongoing realities that Christians must continually be aware of is our need to be saved. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved all by Jesus the Christ, our great Savior and Lord. That old statement still rings true for us, doesn't it? But for the grace of God, there go I. The Lord saved us by His grace. He sanctifies us by His grace. He carries us by His grace. He will keep us by His grace. And when we look at anything in our lives that is good, we inwardly know it's from God. And we want to acknowledge this is only in my life because of the grace of God to me. Know this too. We're going to stand through it all because in the face of falsity, we will remain convinced. Right? You will remain convinced. I will remain convinced that the Lord knows how to rescue us. He knows how and He will. He has. He will. Let's take our third and largest part of the text, the certainty of destruction for false teachers, the certainty of destruction for false teachers. This is probably a good point to note, the difficulty of this portion of the chapter. I mean, as a Christian reader in today's world, Peter is about to put an absolute beat down. He is going nuclear. He is, I mean, it's, it's the verbiage he uses. He goes on and on in a, in a way that makes you wonder if anyone can actually be that bad. He's, the, the people he's describing is like, is that possible that anyone's that bad? And, and that's the rub for us, isn't it? We want to give the benefit of the doubt. We're even taught to think charitably. We are called, generally speaking, to gracious, winsome speech. We're to season our lives with salt and our speech with salt. But we're going to see something quite different from Peter here. And we are to learn from it. One part we are to learn is that there is a necessity to the severity of Peter's words. He's inspired. God is giving this to him to give to his readers, and to give ultimately to us. And, and I, I, I want to raise this with us as we interact with God's Word. Think about this. If we, if you and I cannot imagine a situation where these words could ever apply, we need, think about this, if we, can, if we cannot even imagine a situation, when Peter's telling us that there will be false teachers among us, if we can't, cannot even imagine a situation where the severity of these words are not only appropriate, but necessary to properly understand what's going on. If we can't imagine that kind of a situation where these words could ever apply, then we need to rethink our interpretation of life in this fallen, cursed world and life in the church. If we can't imagine that these words belong in the church, then We've got to rethink our understanding. It's time to grow up a little bit more, to mature and to understand that there's an appropriate application for these words. And it's for us to understand that and apply it. We can break these 11 or so verses down into two parts. First, we see the character of the false teacher, and then we're going to see a bit more of what false teachers do. So let's read uh, the second half of verse 10, which will probably begin a paragraph in your in your Bible, second half of verse 10 uh, through verse 16. Let me read that for you. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. 
But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. At the beginning of this, where Peter talks about the false teachers blaspheming the glorious ones, is, is hard to understand, and there are a couple of popular interpretations here. Nevertheless, it's worth focusing on for just a few moments. I believe here that the glorious ones are the unfallen angels, so angels that haven't fallen. And in some Jewish traditions, angels were thought to mediate some of God's instructions to His people, like in, in some way the Ten Commandments to Moses. And so you can imagine that false teachers were either either claiming to have heard from an angel, a la Joseph Smith of the Mormons or Muhammad of Islam, they heard, they're saying they heard from a spiritual being or an angel, or these false teachers are criticizing angels somehow, probably for the ethical teachings of the church in some way. In any case, they are bold and willful. Keep that in mind for a moment, that bold and willful, because it takes a lot of boldness and willfulness to criticize angels. Peter goes on to talk about how the angels, on the other hand, those serving God in His presence, these glorious ones, these bright shining ones, they, they have more right and reason to be critical to bring critical judgment on the false teachers than the false teachers have to bring any criticism to the angels, right? Shouldn't the, the angels who serve in the presence of God, they could go to God and say, this one is really bad. You really need to deal with this guy. But they don't even do that. Why? Why don't the glorious ones, why don't the angels bring judgments against us to God? Why would it be blasphemous for them to do so? Because that's not what angels are made for. Angels don't judge the human race. God judges the human race. And He even uses us to judge the human race. But it's not for angels. And that's why it'd be wrong for them to do that. And yet angels are respectful of that. But the false teachers, they don't care. They criticize angels or they they lie about hearing from angels. One application that jumps to mind is whenever there's a lot of specific and spectacular teaching on spiritual warfare. We believe in spiritual warfare. We believe in angels. We believe that demons are real. We believe the devil is working against our faith. These big categories the Scriptures teach us. Now, many of us come from charismatic or Pentecostal backgrounds where that kind of teaching can be exalted. And the problem with that kind of teaching is the Scriptures don't give us a ton of behind-the-scenes technical data on how the spiritual world works. It's just not the primary focus of God's Word. It's just not. 
It does in large categories, like I mentioned, but not in the specifications. It's not like you go to the spiritual warfare website and you click on, okay, I don't want the big overview. I want the specifications, like, like if you were looking at an appliance. What's the size of it? What are the dimensions? What are the, what's the weight? It's not like that. That's not the way the Bible is. And when teachers go beyond what the Scriptures give us, they are in speculation land. And that's bold or arrogant. And it's willful, and it tantalizes people with notions of the spectacular and, and, and goads them into thinking all they're going to do with their power that they have, while entirely missing the real power of Christ is to persevere in this life and overcome sin and be protected from the evil one, which is a greater power, greater power than any other power. But the greater application point to pick up on is the prideful willing, willfulness of false teachers. Pick up on this. The prideful willfulness of false teaching. When you see someone taking a teaching tone, they don't have to be standing here, but they're taking a teaching tone, and just about every does, everyone does at some point. When you see someone taking a teaching tone and they are off, don't simply assume that they're a great guy. They're just a good guy. They may be, but that's not all that's going on when you have false teaching. There is a pride there. There is an arrogance and there is a willfulness. I know we're, we're so inclined and geared toward wanting to be at peace with everyone, that we may be unwilling to make these kind of clear judgments. And I'm not saying you need to denounce someone the first time you hear them say something wrong. That's not the point. But the point is to understand that the false teacher is false at not only the layer of the teaching, but the layer of the motivation. And it's a character issue ultimately. It's not just a knowledge issue. It's a character issue. They may be good guys, but that's not all they are. There's pride, there's will. And when you combine pridefulness and willfulness, you get a potential danger for God's people. When we put it in terms like that, that's very common, isn't it? Very common. It doesn't mean someone's a false teacher per se, but they're going to need to look hard, maybe turn from that so that they don't end up being one. Verse 13 says that these false teachers suffer wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. The idea is that they're doing wrong and they get bad consequences from doing wrong. So they do wrong. And you can imagine that makes sense, obviously, if you're not navigating life according to the righteousness that God requires, well, you're going to go down a bad path and you're going to experience bad consequences from that. Maybe at first their results seem good to them. Maybe they've gathered a group of people to themselves, but they won't seem good forever. They will suffer the consequences of their willful pride. I couldn't help but illustrate this with socialism because it, it, it reminds me of socialism and socialists. Think about socialism. Is, socialism is a historically godless way of ordering society and economics, economies. It's generally godless and it's it, 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 out of that kind of framework and thinking it orders 
both society, politically, and economics. And so I just want to point this out. Socialism keeps ending badly. It keeps ending badly. It's really not up for discussion. History doesn't allow for it to be up for discussion. I know people discuss it. I know people say, well, they just did it wrong in the past. But it keeps happening. There were hundreds of millions of murders associated with socialism since its inception. This isn't up for evaluation. This happened. It's the proverbial pathway to hell being paved by good intentions, humanistic intentions, godless intentions, secular intentions. What I'm really driving at is that the current leaders of the socialist activism, even in our country today, it's, it's, what's fascinating to me, what, what these people don't seem to understand is from history how badly things end up for the leaders of socialism. You know, you would think you'd, you'd think you'd look at, oh, how did, how'd that work out for those guys? Oh, the people rose up and, and destroyed them. Yeah, that sounds like a, that seems like a bad way to go. Maybe I won't do that. They, they actually, they ended up becoming murderers of a lot of people because they had to enforce their policies. That seems like, you know, I probably don't want to become that. But they don't do that. And that's the same dynamic you see with the false teachers among God's people. History says that leaders of socialism suffer wrong for their wrongdoing. That's what the false teacher in the church will experience as well. Even if, unfortunately, they take some with them. Let's take a brief look at what the false teacher does. Let me read for you the final portion, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 to 22. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 to 22. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So first note those few last verses here. It's the idea that these people are among God's people, seeming to be sincerely numbered among God's people, seeming to believe, yet they end up under condemnation. And these verses can raise a good conversation regarding whether someone can lose their salvation or not. Now, we believe that you cannot lose your salvation because, of, uh, because we, we believe that anyone the Father gives to Jesus is safe, and Jesus will never lose them. And when Jesus goes out to save, he's mighty to save, and he never fails. And you can see John chapter 6 or John chapter 10 or Romans chapter 6 through 9 or many other passages of Scripture for where we get that doctrine from that is so reassuring to the believer. 
So it seems to us that since only God knows the state of our soul, these false teachers were not genuinely belonging among God's people. So it's another good time to make our calling and election sure. But what's really in view in these verses is that God is not fooled by false teachers. Everyone else can be fooled. The church can be fooled. You can become a member. You can fool the leaders of the church. That can all happen. But God cannot be fooled. And those that try to fool God will face greater consequence from God because they were in such proximity to the gospel of grace and yet rejected it in their willful pride. Because that's what it takes to reject the gospel. Willful pride. But let's turn our attention to our main concern here. Please note from verses 18 to 19 who the false teacher targets. They target the novice, the weak, the baby Christian, the immature. How do they do it? How do they target the immature? They promise them freedom and a higher plane of spiritual experience. Brothers and sisters, do not be fooled. Their freedom is slavery through and through. If God has already done for you a work of grace, don't throw it away by following a new teacher who is actually filled with arrogance and willfully uses you, willfully uses you for their own self-justification. From time to time, sadly, we see this. We're one of the weaker ones who God did a great work of grace and is swept up by some false person, and they have no idea that they're being used for that person's own selfish purposes to, to, in their own willful pride, to justify themselves by the gathering they've gathered around them. Remember, my brothers and sisters, in the face of falsity in this world and in the church, we must remain convinced that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. And to keep the unrighteous under For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.